he got up, he went home. That's amazing. I mean, I would love to have, I won't say that kind of power. I would love to have that gift. You'd love to be able to see somebody hurting, somebody paralyzed. They can't move, and you go up and you say, rise, get up, and go. But you have the authority to forgive sins. But we lead those who do. But he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, their reaction was fear. Because this wasn't some charlatan. This is a known paralytic. They had done this, make a spectacle of themselves. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. He comes in front. The scribes all get all upset. There's a tension in the room between Jesus and the authorities. What's he going to do? Then he tells the guy to get up. What's he going to do? He gets up and he walks out. And everybody, they don't just go, hey, I got an ache right here. You know, they freak out. They are in fear because they have recognized a work of God in their midst that's supernatural. And they've seen it. And they know. And Jesus is making a point. So when I say your sins are forgiven, it's the same thing. It happens. My will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And then when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God. So they did both things. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So they were still, they were right, and they were still working through who, who Jesus Christ is. So you have this picture. True story, not a parable, of a paralytic who has friends, who have faith. They pick him up. They take him. He can't get there. They bust through the roof. They get him there. Sins are forgiven. Argument with the scribes and Pharisees. Pick it up. Go walk. Picks it up. Goes walk. The friends, all afraid. They're all glorifying God. And what do you think that guy does for the rest of his life? Every time he wakes up, and throws a leg over the side of the bed and stands up. Does he just, how long does it take for him to get used to doing that and just don't even remember God did that? I mean, you have to think that for the rest of his life, every time, I mean, what if he stumbles and falls? You know, he's going, God, if you hadn't made me walk, I wouldn't trip and hurt my toe. He'd be like, thank God I have the ability to trip and fall. You know, or somebody laughs at him. I remember, and here you go, again, here's a story that the pastors tell about their children. Walking around Carowinds, just walking, minding my own business. I don't ever do anything like this to my children, so I don't know where he gets it from. But Ian does that little thing where he kicks your foot under, you know, so you're walking, all of a sudden you do that little thing. Ian trips and falls. There's a woman watching, sitting on a chair somewhere, and she goes, ha, ha. <laughs> it was like, perfect timing. So, if this had been Ian, and he had been a paralytic, and he had just learned to walk, and she goes, hey, hey, and he's on the ground being laughed at. At first, he should apologize. Maybe it's an imperfect analogy. But he had fallen and got laughed at. He would have immediately said, I praise God for the ability to fall. I praise God for the ability to trip. I praise God. This paralytic would have praised God for bumping his head on something too low. So that all the things that happened to us, because of the blessings God has given us, you know, do we just look at this thing or say, man, if it wasn't for these blessings, even these things would not have happened. 
And as a corollary to this, I'm disheartened to see people who consistently are blessed by God and in those things with which they are blessed, draw them away from church, draw them away from God. Do not allow the blessings of God to draw you away from God. It is the height of hypocrisy for the man to walk. And so now that he can walk, to walk away from his friends, to walk away from church, to walk away from everything, um, what would he say when he runs into Jesus again? I give you the ability to walk, and this is what you do with it. And the reason I do this lengthy introduction for a relatively short text is because this is a hard text. This text is um, one of these texts, you know, if you know it's coming up, there are certain people, you almost go, well, I hope if certain people show up, they don't take it this way, or they don't take it that way. But then as you work through it, you're like, well, I, hurt. I hope certain people show up. So they'll recognize their need to get to Jesus. They will recognize their condition. But this passage, as we listen to it, remember, this is written specifically, there's application to the world, but specifically to this church that is struggling with persecution, to a church that's struggling with the grand ceremonial religious worship of the Jews of the day, Old Testament things still in place, with sacrifices and all of these things that the priest and their glory and all of this stuff, and also protection from persecution, because they were a recognized religion, and Christianity quickly became a sect that did not have such protection from persecution. And some of these people are deciding to fall away. Maybe they go back to the synagogues. Maybe they go back to the religious worship, rejecting Christ. Or maybe they just do like a lot of people to get mad at a church. They don't get mad at a church and then go to another church. They just quit going to church. So you've got to be careful with that. And if you ever get mad at church, which you should, if you're, you know, recognizing the fact that we're all still have the ability to offend each other, it's the way you work it out. And you are called to work it out. Um... Of course, I'm not going to get into There can be gross sin and gross heresies and things like that, to which there's times to separate and do things like that. But I'm just talking about what 98% of the people, that's my personal statistic, 98% of the people who are disgruntled in churches that leave, it's over something you should have just overlooked or talked about and tried to get it worked out, and then you have a greater harmony than there was before. And you have to be willing to do that. And if you're not willing to do it, then you will be gone before too long because something's going to offend you. Something's not going to be right because Satan desires to break this up. And I, know, I believe one of the things God is doing in the pandemic is he, you know, you're able to go to a grocery store in the beginning, look at the bread aisle gone, look at the toilet paper aisle gone. It's like, isn't it good to know God's in control and have a gospel conversation to pray with people, pray with cashiers, pray with doctors, pray with, you know, you can go around pray with people, you can share the gospel, you can invite people to come to church, people are saying they need to come to church, and then all of a sudden, what put an end to all that? Distancing. Apart. The mask. The shields. Distance goes out, masks come on, shields come out, Get in, get out. That's it for the evangelistic fruits. And so you're kind of like, well, man, that was exciting there for a while when everybody thought they were going to die. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like the opposite of what you might think. But you need to see your need of him. 
And this is what we pray, that people would see their need. But then you see the fruit afterwards. There are people who come. There are people who pray. There are people who just need to be reminded. <laughs> Remember when you thought you were going to die for going outside? Remember when you thought you had to wash your clothes or microwave your mail? Or you remember when you thought if you get this, that's the end? And how you finally faced the fact that you could die and face eternity? And what does that mean for me? And who is Jesus? Who is God? And you said several people to me, I haven't been to church in years, but I need to get back. You know, or maybe people even in here that just said, I need to get right with God. I need to evangelize people more. But you don't need to leave. You need to clean more tightly. So Hebrews 10, just listen to what he says to these people. And we're going to start actually in verse 25. I'm sorry, 23. Because verse 26 actually starts with the word for. And you have to see what's the word for there for. And you have to go back for if we, what do you mean? So it connects with the previous sentence. And so the sentence begins in verse 23. Um, no, I'm sorry, 24. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What if the guys who had dropped through the roof and said, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk, and they go out and they think about this, and they think about this, and maybe they're telling people about Jesus, and they're being persecuted for it, or hard things are happening, and the guy that can walk is now upset because he doesn't have shoes, or he's upset because now nobody carries him anywhere anymore, you know. And, and, and then they see Jesus again, and they spit on him. <laughs> Or they see Jesus, to carry the biblical analogy here, lying down, and they just trample him overfoot. Just walk on him, step on him, treat him like he's not holy, but he's just trash. And he's also called, in that verse 29, spurned the Son of God. So he's not just calling him Spurn Jesus, spurn Son of Man, Son of God. This is clicking into his divinity. You are trampling underfoot the Son of God. This is this is the sin of this is he's talking about apostasy. And what apostasy means is to to 
to no longer stand in what you believe, to walk away from the faith, to, to not just... And this is what he's talking about here in, in verse um, 25, not neglecting to meet. Now, the ESV has translated this as not neglecting to meet, but in the King James and the New American Standard, um, it doesn't say not neglecting to meet. It actually says forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, to forsake it, which is a better translation. It, it, it carries the weight of the Greek better. And what does it mean to forsake something? It doesn't just mean, I was lazy this morning, I feel like it, and I'm going to church. Well, in a sense, did I forsake the assembling? Yeah, but not in that sense. You should have been here. You should have come. Or there's been a while when I've sort of just, you know, you get into the habit of not going to church, and so you don't go to church, and that's awful. That's a sin. But it's not the same thing he's talking about here, really, forsaking the assembly. But you have to examine yourself if you are in that situation where you're not going to church or you're missing consistently. Or have you forsaken Christ? Have you forsaken the assembly? Have you forsook it? My God, my God, why have you neglected me? It's not what Jesus is saying on the cross. He is not saying, my God, my God, why have you neglected me? He's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says here to these people, don't forsake the church, the assembling of yourselves together, don't apostatize. Don't forsake it. But she says, if you do, so let's just stick with 25 a second. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, as is the habit of some. Some people have made this a habit of forsaking the church. What's that mean, to, to make it a habit? So it makes sense. You can see, well, I was talking about somebody that just doesn't go to church, and then they don't go to church. Now they're in a habit. They're not going to church. And that's true. I mean, you fall into that habit. I remember the, when I was growing up, we'd miss church a lot. And then the worst thing was to have to go back to church and have, have everybody say to you, you know, to have people speak to you. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's like if nobody speaks to you, you're mad because they don't speak to you. And if they do speak to you, you're mad because they spoke to you. You know, you're in this terrible place. And it can be embarrassing to show up finally and have people say, oh, we've missed you. It's like, just ignore the fact that I haven't been here for forever. It's like, we can't do that. But we're glad. So it's not talking about being in that habit. It's like there's a bunch of people who have done this. There's a bunch of people in this church that he's talking to. There's several people who have neglected and forsook them. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to help one another. How do you do that if you're not here? So you have to be around people. Because if 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, and what does that mean? Forsaking the church. If you go on sinning, you don't even care. Now, we all sin, and it's to our shame. But there is grace, and there is mercy. But to sin go on sinning deliberately just means I don't really care what you say, the church says, the Bible says. I'm just going to, I'm forsaking all that, and I'm just going to do what I think is right in my own heart. I'm just forsaking it. Well, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So there's no Jesus saying your sins are forgiven. There's none of that. There's no sacrifice for sins anymore. But what is there? A fearful expectation of judgment. A fearful expectation of judgment. NAS says a terrifying expectation of judgment, which is a fine translation. Um, 
and it may add a little more to what we should be feeling, a terrifying expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Why would you not be terrified of a fury of fire? Would you just, I'm kind of fearful. You're terrified of a fury of fire. 9-11, just the other day, people jumping from buildings, and it wasn't because they were depressed. It was because the only way, I mean, you imagine jumping from that height. And I saw interviews with, you know, somebody's coming away and they're interviewing people and he just says, you know, what'd you see? What'd you think? What's going on? And people are in shock and the guy says, bodies were falling from the air. So all you get here, boom, boom, boom. What am I supposed to think? Bodies are falling from the sky. And so we, you know, good that we still remember what evil can look like. And we need to remember what unity looks like after that. But you kind of need a common enemy. And we have become one another's enemies. So I don't know what God will do to cause good and unity to triumph again, but we pray that the church would lead the way for these things. But why would they jump? It's because fire is worse than that. I mean, I don't like heights. I'm not afraid of heights. I probably border on it. The older I get, <laughs> I used to jump from high dives and stuff, platform dives and things like that. And you know, and that's different from looking over, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, you do that thing where they're on, just kind of lean and hit their head on the glass and look down. And it's like, no, 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 no. It could fall out. I'm sorry. There's, that's just ridiculous. But fire, it wasn't jumping to, it was jumping away from. And so why is God giving us as believers this warning. Is this something that can happen to the believer? Can we fall away? But I think what we see is we understand that we're to encourage one another. That we are to exhort one another. We get it. Well, why would you do that if people who are saved are held tightly by God all the way to the end? If you're assured of your salvation, why encourage anybody? Why exhort anybody to do good things? You know, why? Why do it? And so we don't even think that way. We're like, well, because, you know, we all need encouragement. Well, what about warning? What about warning if you fall away, you will experience this? Because we don't really do that because for the believer, we think, you know, you're held tight. Well, Maybe one of the ways God holds us tight is putting us in a church who will be encouraging, who will be exhorting, and maybe put us in a church that sometimes remembers to warn people, what happens if you fall away? Where am I going to go? John chapter 6. Jesus is teaching, and it's a hard teaching, and many of the disciples stop following him. They, it's not talking about the 12. This is the multitudes of people, and many of them, they just start leaving him. And he looks at his disciples, the intimate group of disciples, and he says, you know, are, are you, are you going to leave me too? And Simon Peter looks at him and he says, where else are we going to go? 
you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And so what Hebrews is telling us, there are people who just leave. And we would believe, given biblical authority and biblical teaching, that if they've truly apostatized, abandoned the faith, forsaken the church, um, that they weren't believers. And you can have people walk away. You can have prodigal son type things. You can have people, but you know, but there's this, there's a, you got to be careful of that. And this is a warning that I think we need to preach it to yourself, preach the exhortations, preach the warnings to yourself, preach it to other people. Do you understand what there is if you trample underfoot the Son of God? Because that's what you're doing. Do you understand what it means if you are spurning, spurring, what's the word here? If you are, you profane the blood of the covenant. I mean, you think of communion. You know, so many people, it, it hurts my heart that we have shut-ins who don't get to take communion and maybe we're not willing to even grab them, bring them in, drop them through the roof, do something to get that to them because it doesn't mean enough to us. Um, the Word of God even. Now that we have a country, a world full of shut-ins that aren't allowed to go to church and some, some churches still haven't really opened back up. Do we understand the warnings to these things too? That you have profaned the blood of the covenant when you're leaving, when you're forsaking the church. And I'm not saying these people are forsaking the church by being in nursing homes or something. I'm saying we've maybe forsaking them by not trying to get to them more. But you're profaning the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. Cleansed of your sins. You're going to run from that because then you're no longer cleansed from sins. And then to outrage the spirit of grace. I don't even think if that wasn't in the Bible, I think most people would say if a pastor stood up and said, you know, you don't want to outrage the spirit of grace. They'd be like, you can't outrage the spirit of grace because he's the spirit of grace. Grace, undeserved favor, unlimited grace. You can't outrage the spirit of grace. It is contrary to the nature of grace for it to be outraged. And it's like, okay, fair enough. However, you're contradicting the word of God now because it says when you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, forsaking the church in Jesus Christ and the gospel, then what you have done is you are outraging the spirit of grace. And if the spirit of grace is outraged by you, imagine what the wrath of God is going to look like. I mean, it's a serious biblical exhortation. Now, I think you have to be careful how you preach it. I think if you're excited about this, and this is what you want to go around telling everybody, and this is the gospel, hey, you know, you're going to hell. You better go to Jesus, because you're going to hell. And smile, and, you know, it's like, because you've got to preach that to yourself. And then you ask yourself, what drove you to Christ? Was it the warnings? Or was it the beauty of Christ? Was it the depth of your sin and you recognizing your need for him and how bad you are and how much shame you have and how you neglect him and you need him and you see the salvation that's there and you just need that and there he is and you go to him? So you have to preach the gospel in its fullness, but then you have to be aware of that if you think of things because you get sinned and tangles and ensnares and life is 
hard. Life is, the, the younger you are, the, I guarantee you the less you understand about hard, how hard life is. And then there are young people who've gone through much more horrific things than a lot of older people. But give it time and you will continue to see how difficult this life is. And coming to Jesus doesn't make it less difficult. It makes it make more sense and it gives you a peace in the storms. But it will not always calm the storm. But it will cause you to focus on Christ to enable you to walk on the water. And then there will be times when you notice these things. Eyes off Jesus. You begin to sink. And Jesus says, Eat a little faith, why would you doubt? And that's the relationship with God. But don't think if I'm in the boat and I see the storms and I see Jesus and I see everything else. And I'm like, I'm out. I'm done. This is ridiculous. I want nothing to do. And you forsake the boat. You forsake Jesus. You forsake your friends. And you are gone. There's nothing but the storm. There's no boat. There's no Jesus. There's no harbor. There's nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In verse 30, because we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And that's the verses where he talks about don't take vengeance for yourself. The, the, uh, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Forgive other people. Jesus says, God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. You're going to fall into the vengeance of God if there's nothing else. The Lord will judge his people. So don't just think because you've come to Christ. Don't just think because you've externally said things, done things. Even take the Lord's Supper, which is worse. Because now you're really outraging the spirit of, of grace. To be baptized and to go to hell with that mark on you. Imagine how awful that is. So I believe that the warnings, this one in particular in Scripture, are there to remind us just as we're to be encouraged, just as we're to be exhorted to hope, we're also to be reminded that there are dangers over there. There is a danger of falling away. And the Bible tells us to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. And these things, sometimes they happen in steps. It's not like somebody all of a sudden just takes a, you know, you might see it publicly. There are several people who publicly made these, you know, I no longer believe statements. And it's like, and it seems like one minute, man, they're perfect Christians. The next minute they're like, hey, I'm out. It's like, how'd that happen? <laughs> steps, steps, steps. You know, you got to wonder in the garden, how many steps did Eve take in her heart to kind of doubt God's goodness? And then when the final fall happens, she's, she's good to go. Didn't take much. And then Adam standing there, steps and steps and steps, small, incremental steps, loving Eve more than God. If she's dead, I'm out too. She gave him, he took, he ate, obeying his wife's voice. You know, how does it happen? Because we have to remember 
we tend to think in the garden that everything was fine until he, they ate. And we would even say, well, what if they didn't eat, but their hearts turned against him? It's like, no, the law was don't eat. Your heart turns, you're going to eat. Satan's going to make sure of that. Your flesh is going to make sure of that. There's no way the heart, the mind, the spirit, the flesh turned against God does not target immediately the law of God. I will transgress. I will break it. And you know if you have any, ever had a child or anybody in your employee or student or teacher, anybody like that who just, <laughs> you have decided you are at odds with, or you had a child who's just rebellious, you, you say, hey, tell you what, just don't touch that red dot on the wall, and you stay here and do anything you want to. It won't be a minute before they're over there, as we say in the South, mashing that red dot on the wall. And it's us, without Christ. So we have to watch our feet, because it's easy to lose the path by wandering a little and a little and a little away until there's no way left to see, and we walk away more and more willingly. But we have to remember where else would we go, and we need to be reminded by um, Charles Spurgeon says this, um, think lightly of hell, and you will think lightly of the cross. So you need, we need to be reminded as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to the gospel, as we go to the Bible, as we pray to him, as we think about these things. It's not just, this is a cool thing to be a part of. It's not just, you know, I like going and singing the music, I like being there, I like being a part of it. It's a cool club to join. But as soon as it starts to bother me and I kind of don't like it anymore, there's a cooler club over there for me to join. It's like, that's not why you came to God. And that's not what the purpose of Jesus Christ coming on the cross and dying and being risen on the third day. This wasn't what that was about. Experiencing the wrath of God on the cross. Why have you forsaken me, oh God, my God, my God? It was to save sinners from hell. So you forsake that, there's hell. And we have this place in the Bible... That reminds us of this. And these warnings should spur us to greater faith and diligence in study, devotion, and, and worship. Not because if we don't do it, God's going to get us. But because we better cling to the means of grace lest we too fall short. It should spur us to evangelism. Look what can happen to people. Pray for people. Bring them before the Lord. Go to them. Do what we can. And it should spur the non-believer to you know, <laughs> repentance and faith. Not just escaping hell, but seeing the beauty of Christ. So we're going to look at the rest of this passage next week. But we need to hear it. Because he completes his thought and he says, But, recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Look at what faith. They had their property plundered. And then what they do? Joyfully. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's lasting. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, 
And the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in, on, uh, in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's awesome. That's gospel. Preserve your soul. This is what we're escaping. The wrath of God which we deserve if we turn and forsake the church, forsake Christ. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for faith. Thank you for the preservation of our souls. And there's human responsibility here. I mean, you do it. You're sovereign. You hold us. If it wasn't for you, we'd never make it. But you give us things to do. The Holy Spirit gives us faith, but the Holy Spirit does not believe for us. We have to struggle with it. We have to um, examine it. We need to go to the Word. We go to worship. We work with one another. We pray for one another. We, we have ups and downs in our lives. We may have times we walk away from the church, but then we return to the church. There may be times when we go deeper and deeper with God, and the, we see the heights of heaven as never before, and then something hits us hard, and we're just down. And that's when the church shines so brightly in people's lives. And we, when you're in a dark place, and the church comes in and helps you through something that without somebody there to help, somebody to pick up our beds and carry us to Christ. We could not do it on our own. So show us where those people are. Help us to be faithful. And when these things happen to us, keep us faithful. We think you preserve our souls. And when we think about these warnings in Scripture, if we start to, because of sin in our lives, we suppress the knowledge of God and wonder about our faith and doubt whether these things be true. One thing we're encouraged with, another we're reminded, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? There's a fearful expectation of judgment. Is that what you want? You're, you're trampling underfoot the Son of God. You're, you're calling profane the blood of the covenant. And you're, you are just, out, that we're just outraging the Spirit of grace. And we can't do that. We don't want to do that, Lord, because we have faith. And we don't have to experience these things. Make us a good church. Make us solid believers. Keep us close. Help us to cling tightly to the hope that's within us. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.